0: Welcome to the EADV podcast. In today's special episode, Professor Jan Guttenmuth speaks with Professor Eva Parker, co-author of a recent commentary that was published simultaneously in the International Journal of Dermatology, the British Journal of Dermatology, Paediatric Dermatology and the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. The commentary, co-authored with Professor Marcus Boos, titled Dermatology's Call to Emergency Action on Climate Change, Aims to draw recognition to the climate crisis to members of the dermatology and venereology community. After all, we know the skin is the largest organ and our primary interface with the environment, and many dermatological diseases are climate sensitive. But before we get into it, hosted in Porto, Portugal, from the 28th to the 30th of November 2022, the EDU Autumn School is the first multi-course event organized by the Academy, where eight courses covering various dermatovenerology topics will run in parallel. It will count the experience of 40-plus speakers, offering a total of 400 seats for residents, specialists, and nurses in dermatology and virology, and the range of topics from dermoscopy to inflammatory diseases, from skin infections to hair and nails. Visit EADV.org to learn about how to register and participate in this exclusive learning opportunity. Including practical suggestions for how we can consider our carbon footprint and minimize wasteful practices in dermatology, we hope you find this important conversation inspiring and consider sharing it with others. If you'd like to read the commentary, we will leave a link in our show notes below. Enjoy.
1: Welcome. Today we have the great pleasure of having Professor Eva Parker with us. She comes from the Department of Dermatology and the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, we have invited you today, Dr. Parker, because you have written a very important um opinion piece that you published in in numerous journals about climate change. Could you tell us a little bit more about this?
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and this is such a critical topic to discuss. I, I think we all recognize that climate change is impacting health globally and it's really become a health crisis. And last year, approximately 230 medical journals around the world co-published an emergency call to action on climate change. However, dermatology journals did not participate. And that was really my motivation and impetus to write this along with Dr. Marcus Bose, who is at the University of Washington in Seattle. And our piece outlines the major impacts that it has on dermatologic health the practice of dermatology and highlight some of the areas that we can focus on as dermatologists to improve our carbon footprint as well as the health of our patients.
1: So that is something that really concerns us all and maybe we can start with the medical part. So what are the consequences of climate change for us dermatologists when we see patients?
2: As dermatologists, we all realize that the skin is an incredibly large organ and is a primary interface with our environment. And that means that many of our skin diseases are climate sensitive and react to what's going on in the environment. When you look at climate change, you have several large categories of effects. You have increasing temperatures and heat. You have extreme weather events like storms and floods. You also have increased air pollution, both from man-made sources as well as wildfires. And you have man-made substances like chlorofluorocarbons and related compounds destroying the ozone layer in the stratosphere, increasing UV radiation at, on Earth. And I think all of those tie in either directly or indirectly to climate change. And when you look at how those things impact skin disease, It's a broad range. So you have numerous heat exacerbated illnesses. So for example, you have exacerbation of Haley-Haley disease during heat waves or hydrogenitis suprativa or Grover's disease or folliculitis. With things like extreme weather events and flooding, there's a number of dermatoses that are associated with flooding as well as many skin infections, as well as skin trauma. And then when we think about things like inflammatory skin diseases, like atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, we see that air pollution and wildfire smoke both affect these diseases acutely. So that's just a small snapshot of what is a very, very broad topic. With heat in general, we see that temperatures are rising across the globe. And as a result of that, we're seeing expansion in the range of many vectors that transmit important diseases. And so we've seen expansion of ticks within North America and increasing rates of of Lyme disease and in in other parts of the world we're seeing expansion of mosquito-borne illnesses and likely diseases like malaria will become increasingly important in temperate zones
1: yeah this is something we are really afraid of are there are there any examples of viruses or parasites that have already been moving from tropical to northern hemispheres for instance
2: I I think dengue is a great example, because if you look at the history of dengue over the last 40 or 50 years, you will see that it expanded from only a handful of countries to Um, numerous countries across the globe. And in fact, in 2019, we saw some of the worst dengue outbreaks globally, including in the Caribbean. And as a consequence, we're seeing movement of dengue now into Southern Europe, as well as the Southern United States. And we're seeing local transmission in the United States, for example, in places like Texas, in addition, things like Chagas disease and Leishmaniasis are also starting to move uh-huh. northward into the southern United States. And I likely think that we'll see similar expansion into Europe of diseases from Africa and the Middle
1: East. Yeah, definitely. We So the, here, when, when you look at Congresses, the uh, the sessions on imported diseases always have a lot, get a lot of interest. But um, from what you're describing, um, I think we need to consider our curricula uh, across the globe to really uh, focus that we recognize these diseases, because depending on where you are trained and where you uh working, uh, yeah, where you perform medicine, you might miss uh, such diagnosis. So I think the change is coming here quite quickly. When you look at the changes, we have the, uh, the tropical climates and the northern uh, hemispheres and the southern hemispheres. Uh, are there Uh, are they all more or less affected the same way? It was like everything was more more heat, more plants, more allergens. Is this something that we see across the globe or do we see any pattern uh, in different climate zones, temperate zones?
2: That's a great question because what we do know is that climate change will differentially impact regions. And so currently wet regions will likely get more wet and currently dry regions will become increasingly drought prone and more arid. And so, for example, in the United States, which is a very large country, we don't see the same climate impacts across the nation evenly. So in our Western states, they're much more prone to drought and wildfires whereas coastal areas are much more prone to sea level rise, flooding, and severe storms like hurricanes or cyclones. And then in places where I live in Tennessee, which is more landlocked, we see uh, heat waves and we see a lot of inland flooding. So that's going to depend on what part of the world that you live in as to what the impacts from climate change will be. And as a result, that impacts the diseases that you may see. But certainly we know that infectious diseases, especially vector-borne diseases, and also infectious diseases as a result of climate migration, are going to be knocking on every physician's door, regardless of what part of the world you live in. And you're absolutely right that climate literacy, I think, is so essential in medicine in general, but also specifically in dermatology. And I think we have a duty to incorporate This conversation into what we teach our students and our residents, as well as ourselves. It should be part of our ongoing medical education as practicing dermatologists.
1: Yes, from all that you described today, I think uh, uh, that makes us think. We will have to think something here in our department in the next days, how we will address this um, in our curriculum. Um, Yeah, unfortunately, from what I just heard, we are always it's always getting worse. They're not really positive parts. The the dry regions are getting more dry, the wet regions are getting more wet. Um, So uh, this really calls us for action. And I think in your your call to action, you have made some very clear statements and recommendations. What we as dermatologists can do, apart from improving our care, what can we do to fight climate change and, and rising temperatures?
2: It's a great question, and I think it's important when we start this conversation to acknowledge how carbon intensive the healthcare sector is, and different countries contribute different amounts. I'm an American physician, and so I have to acknowledge that the U.S. healthcare system is... uh, probably the worst player. We contribute about 25% to all greenhouse gas emissions globally from the healthcare sector. And so in particular, the United States has to clean up their act. And you see many large health systems like the NHS and the United Kingdom already taking steps to decarbonize. But in particular, dermatology tends to be carbon intensive within, Medicaid, within medicine. We do a lot of procedures. We generate a fair amount of waste. And we often have lots of equipment that plugs in to outlets. And so we we consume a lot of energy. And so I think our specialty is particularly um, uh, uh well positioned to do better and to decarbonize and there's many different steps dermatologists can take a simple step is looking at where you order your supplies and looking at supply chains that are more sustainable and manufacturers that have sustainability initiatives another step is to do a waste audit within your own practice and see where you can minimize waste and make sure that that waste is segregated properly Most of us take contaminated waste and put it in red biohazard bins or bags, and that gets incinerated. Not only is that much more costly for our health systems, but it also generates a tremendous amount of not only greenhouse gases, but non-greenhouse gas air pollution. pollution. So making sure the waste gets segregated properly is so important. And then lastly, we can do more in our individual behaviors with how we practice medicine and how we learn in reducing our carbon footprint.
1: Before we move on to this, I, I get really interested in this um, segregation of waste because i've been I've been looking into this in our department, and we had the choice between using one-way forceps scissors um and uh for for procedures uh which would then be burned also afterwards or we could use um uh, sterilized uh, we could sterilize and uh, and my first feeling was that sterilization would be more uh climate friendly but when i talked to our sterilization unit they explained to me how much deionized water they needed for just a few instruments and what amount of energy is consumed to deionize this water. So do we already know what is the truth here?
2: I think that if you do a life cycle study and you look at the from from birth to an inception of that single use product to its final disposal and incineration, I think you'll see that using single use items actually is more carbon intensive than Mm -hmm using items that you can sterilize and reuse multiple times and there's a lot of movement within medicine to also take items where appropriate that may be meant for single use and sterilize them to turn them into into multi-use items and so I I think that um, if you really did a life cycle study you'd see that you actually save energy by using say rather than a scalpel on a plastic handle that gets thrown away uh a reusable metal handle that gets re-sterilized
1: okay that's already a very important uh uh message yeah so um there we can in in these small things we can do a lot you can also discuss do you let's say for a biopsy there are parts there are many countries where biopsies are taken non-sterile so taking just usual gloves Mm -hmm. And you have uh, you have units where you open a, a sterile field and where you use sterile gloves. and um, that makes also a big difference throughout the day. Has been looked into this?
2: So there has been some some work, not with looking at it through a climate lens or or a carbon footprint lens, but just in general, most studies have shown that whether a dermatologic procedure is performed clean or sterile, doesn't grossly change infection rates and so i think that that gives us opportunity to perhaps minimize some of the equipment that we use in our procedures every day
1: maybe maybe an important message to our listeners that they can use tomorrow
2: absolutely and i think on all of this you have to you have to take everything with a grain of salt you have to look at individual patients and their risk factors the location of the surgery etc in a transplant patient you might choose to do something sterile but in a healthy young person who has no risk factors for infection on a clean site that's easy to take care of you may choose to do a clean procedure and save some of that equipment
1: That's yes, that's a very uh, in yeah great way to look at it um anything the we can do I'm just thinking out of the blue in terms of how we run our practice. Turning down two degrees uh, in the northern hemispheres, you might want to uh, turn down the heater two degrees, and maybe in a in a more in a warmer country, you might turn up. You might allow two degrees more of indoor temperature um, using renewable energies when you have a lot of plug-in devices.
2: Absolutely, those are all great suggestions. In addition, you can install devices that will sense motion and only turn on lights when people enter those rooms, rather than the lights being on all of the time. You can install LED light bulbs, which provide tremendous energy savings and are very long lived products. You can also make sure that your faucets are, and toilets are low flow. There's many simple things that can be done. And, and as you astutely pointed out, just changing your thermostat a few degrees can have an effect as long as you keep it there and you're not tempted to then readjust it. But also changing the temperature at night and on the weekends when the office is closed and temperature control is not as necessary. And I think that Anyone can take the information within My Green Doctor and apply it to their practice, regardless of where they are, um, whether they're in in North America or Europe or elsewhere. And My Green Doctor is a great practice management tool that teaches us simple, fun ways to green our offices and save energy. And it's estimated to not only save energy and reduce our carbon footprint, but there's mechanisms to engage your staff. And so it's great team building. And on top of that, it actually saves money, a notable amount per physician. And so that's a free benefit to anyone who is a member of the American Academy of Dermatology. And I know many of our European colleagues do have an international membership, but I believe that you can probably access much of the information without any membership fee. So I definitely encourage listeners to look at My Green Doctor.
1: My Green Doctor, I will check it out uh, this evening. It's a clever name. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's a great name and um, it sticks. Uh, we will remember it and we will be able to look at it. Uh, so I think we have been covering a lot of aspects on uh, how climate change affects uh, dermatology, dermatologic conditions, uh, nature. Uh, our societies and what we can do about. Um, Is there anything, Dr. Parker, that you would like to share with us as final thoughts, what you think is of special importance for our audience?
2: I think that it's really important for dermatologists to educate themselves and become climate literate so that they can in turn do hopefully three things. One is to educate their patients teach their patients about their own vulnerabilities to climate change and help build resilience in their own communities. The second thing is to educate and advocate for education within residencies and medical school curricula. And the third thing is to be an advocate for climate action, regardless of where you live. And I would say that that could be anything from the person that you vote for, for your medical society or for a political election, it can also be advocating within your own medical societies to take action.
1: Yeah. So I think we will take this from here. Thank you very much. Um, one last question. How do you think about telemedicine? Um, is that another way that we can use Absolutely, I think I started down that path earlier and then we, we
2: veered off and, and discussed uh, other important topics. There's There's so much we can talk about here. But yes, telemedicine is a great way to help decarbonize your practice and it's not just relying on virtual platforms to deliver care but we can also use virtual platforms to consume knowledge and share knowledge and so when there's options to attend virtual meetings that's another way to reduce travel and reduce our carbon footprint so virtual platforms are a great way to minimize our impact
1: Dr. Parker, thank you very much. I think you gave us a lot to think about. I'm sure that our colleagues uh, will now spend their evenings discussing what they can do. And I think this is a good example where we can improve medicine, where we can improve uh, uh, environmental aspects and even save money, which is important uh, all across the globe in the healthcare systems. So thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, thank you to our listeners. it
2: my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We would like to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or otherwise find us on any major podcast provider. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.